0: You're listening to a sermon from the Pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 16. And this morning, we're looking at verses 25 through 34. It's on page 925 of the Pew Bible, and we'll be reading together Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 34. Hear the word of God. Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them... the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once he and all his family then he brought them up into his house and set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God well as you may remember Luke wrote this second volume to instruct his good friend Theophilus It is an account of all that Jesus continues to do and to teach through the church. And he promised that she would be his witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And through 16 chapters, we have seen how the Lord made good on that promise. The spread of the gospel started in Jerusalem with the conversion of 3,000 souls in one day. And we're told that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It then extended into the regions of Judea and Samaria as the disciples fled persecution. You may remember how Philip proclaimed Christ in the city of Samaria, and there was much joy in that city. He also explained the true meaning of Isaiah 53 to an Ethiopian eunuch. And the man was converted on the spot. And he was baptized and went on his way rejoicing, according to chapter 8. Since chapter 13, we have been tracing the life and work of Paul and his companions. He led the advance into the nations of the world with the good news of Jesus. And this shows, I think, how God is faithfully spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. In the process, we have seen how the gospel powerfully transforms its converts. For example, in this particular chapter, we have met with three quite remarkable conversions. The first was Lydia, whose heart was opened by the power of God's spirit. The second was a slave girl who was delivered from the grip of an evil spirit. And the third is the Philippian jailer who, with his household, joined the church. And in each case, the transforming power of the gospel takes center stage. And that was the only thing in common among these three people. They were very different. Diverse backgrounds and positions in society and circumstances of life. And I think it proves that the manner in which God converts sinners is not uniform. Conversion is a very personal experience. It's unique to the individual. The circumstances surrounding conversions can be vastly different. Lydia's conversion was sweet and gentle as she listened to Paul speak. That of the slave girl was more dramatic as she was instantly delivered from the devil. And the jailers, I think, is perhaps the most striking of all, which we'll see in a moment. But what this shows is that the spirit of God works with and when and how he pleases. Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. Every conversion is unique. No two people are converted in exactly the same way. One man told Elder Van Drunen at one point that he was not a Christian because Mark could not name the date or the time. And how ridiculous is that? One wonders if that man ever read his Bible. Jesus is the same. The gospel is the same. The Spirit himself is the same, but not conversion. Very different. People are effectually called under very different circumstances, and we hear that every time somebody comes before us to join the church. You may be converted like the jailer all at once in a very spectacular fashion, or you might be wooed gradually by the Spirit through the slow, steady process of life godly parents, a faithful church. There are all sorts of variations in between, and what matters is the gift of life. So Paul and Silas are in prison. After exercising an evil spirit from the slave girl, you remember how her handlers had brought charges against them because of the loss of their income. And they're placed in the deepest dungeon and secured in the stocks. After being beaten with rods and lacerated with many blows. And it was the middle of the night and the two were praying and singing hymns to God. To my mind, can there be a better example of faith and hope than that? Experience joy in the deepest dungeon. They didn't know what the authorities would say to them. They didn't know what they would do to them. But it didn't matter. The Lord was their light and their salvation. Whom should they fear? And here they were praising God with joyful lips and thankful hearts. And to my mind, that is the nature of saving faith, because even in the deepest affliction, there is joy. When things are bad on the outside, the heart is at peace on the inside. That's what they're proving. You remember Peter when he was chained up awaiting execution The man was asleep. (laughs) Paul says in Philippians 4, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's surpassing understanding. Who understands it? And it says, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And here they were in this dungeon that was dark and cold and uncomfortable, and yet these men were singing. And the other prisoners are wondering, I think, how on earth can they sing at midnight in prison? You remember the Grinch who stole Christmas? After stealing all the gifts in Whoville, he goes to the top of the mountain and he's listening, and he's waiting to hear their cries. And to his utter surprise, they sang without presence, without parties, and it puzzled him. And I think, in the same way, the prisoners expected groans from these men who had been beaten and bruised and lacerated just shortly before. But they heard joyful sounds, strange indeed. Why were these men singing? The fact is, I think they were enjoying sweet fellowship with the Lord, even in the depths of prison. Tertullian, one of the church fathers, said it this way, the legs feel nothing in the stalks when the heart is in heaven. And he's right. What a witness this was. It was neither flashy nor exciting, but it was, in fact, profoundly simple. And it had its effect I think, and again, this is speculation on my part, but I think the other prisoners marveled at these Christians. This was very strange behavior, otherworldly conduct, and they wanted to know what their secret was. It shows, I think, that bearing witness to Christ is not a one size fits all, doesn't it? It varies. Some people hand out tracts on the street corner, other people quietly serve their neighbors. And a person's life will often draw the attention and open the door for us to speak about Jesus. And nowhere is this more apparent than in the patient suffering of the saints. How you suffer, how I suffer, how we die is perhaps one of the greatest witnesses on earth. All of a sudden, there was this great earthquake that shook the prison, and of course, tremors and other kinds of seismic activity were common in Philippi, but this was not an average quake. This thing was huge, extremely violent, so powerful that it was able to shake the very foundations of the prison. And as a result, the prison doors flung open, the chains were wrenched from the walls, and Luke tells us that everyone's bonds were unfastened. Incredible. It's incredible. We read this morning that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The Lord Jesus as the angel of the Lord surrounds and delivers his people. And it may take place providentially, as in the case of Paul and Silas, but it will happen eternally since no one will be able to snatch us from his grip. Isn't this very encouraging when Jesus said this, and I quote him. This is the Lord speaking. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So you may endure trials and afflictions and sorrows, but deliverance is inevitable. Well, of course, naturally, the great earthquake awoke the Philippian jailer. And when he discovered the prison doors were opened, he assumed that everybody had escaped. And to his mind, there's only one option. He drew his sword to kill himself. Because in Roman society, the jailers and the guards were personally responsible for their prisoners. And if they failed in their duty and inmates escaped, then the jailers themselves would receive what the prisoners would have received. That's why the soldiers on duty when Peter escaped were all summarily put to death. That's what Peter would have suffered, so the guards were executed. And in this jailer's case, he thought the prisoners had escaped, and he knew the consequences. And so he decided in his mind that it would be better to die by his own hand than to face the cruel Roman justice. And so he stood up and he drew his sword and he was ready to run himself through. And that's when Paul intervened because he was concerned for the Roman jailer. He cried out with a loud voice Don't harm yourself because we're all here. And apparently, at that time, the jailer couldn't see anything as he looked into the darkness of the dungeon. But Paul and his fellow prisoners could see his silhouetted figure in the doorway. And to the jailer's shock and disbelief, all of his prisoners were still accounted for. They hadn't seized their moment of opportunity. They had stayed in the prison. And I have no doubt, again, speculation, but I have no doubt that Paul's influence was what restrained the other prisoners. Wouldn't it be great to have been a fly on the wall just to hear and see those events? How many of those prisoners came to faith as a result of these events? Because it was so unusual for a prisoner like Paul to be concerned about the warden. In many cases, the inmates probably would have rejoiced to see him dead, but not here. Not with Paul, who was concerned about the jailer as much as he was concerned about himself, And I think it shows that he was looking beyond the temporal things of this world to things that can't be seen. He saw a lost soul in need of salvation, and he was ready to speak a good word in season. And so the jailer calls for torches and rushes in, trembling with fear, and he falls down before them as an expression of awe mixed with gratitude, visibly shaken. And I think the Spirit used Paul's witness and the earthquake to awaken the jailer's fears. This ordinary man suddenly felt the terrors of a guilty conscience. God was driving him out of himself and drawing him unto Christ. And it's common for interest in spiritual things to be awakened in a time of trouble. You've heard of foxhole conversions, it's true. In his mercy, the spirit convicts the sinner of guilt and shows him his need or her need. And if you've never experienced the conviction of sin, you need to examine your heart because something's wrong. Because you see, unless we realize that we need a savior, we're never going to apply ourselves to Christ. This is what Jesus meant when he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If we were righteous, we'd have no need of Christ. We would have no need of conviction or repentance or faith. But the truth is, every one of us is by nature guilty of original and actual sin. And so... The Spirit convicts us of our guilt in order to drive us to Christ. And the fact is that Paul saved the jailer's life by staying in prison and keeping all the rest in it, too. And with a reverent and thankful heart, the jailer fell at the feet of these missionaries and asked a most vital question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And with characteristic brevity, Luke takes us to the very heart of the matter. All the events have led up to this crucial question, the most important question of all. And I'm curious, I don't know if you are, I'm curious, why would the jailer at that moment be thinking about eternal things? How did he know what to ask for? Why was he seeking salvation? He's a Roman jailer. There must be more to the story than the space of Luke's parchments allowed. And the only conclusion I can come to is that the jailer must have heard the gospel before. Perhaps from Paul and Silas, or maybe even from the converted slave girl, but somehow the good news of Christ had reached his ears and he knew and God used the earthquake to arouse his fears and to provoke his interest. You know, it was Shakespeare's Hamlet who said, to be or not to be, that is the question. Hamlet's wrong. What must I do to be saved? That is the question. And through the centuries, this inquiry has been the prerequisite for escaping the wrath to come. And the question itself assumes a lot. Guilt? Punishment? Hell? It assumes that God is able and willing to inflict the penalty on anybody who doesn't believe. And so this question is a must for anyone hoping for deliverance from the final judgment. What must I do to be saved? And there are many who have never asked this question. And perhaps they see no need of salvation. They don't recognize their own depravity, and they haven't even grasped the urgency of the situation. Every Sunday when I'm here, I stand there and say, man does not know his time. Oftentimes people think somehow everything's going to work out. Don't know how. It's going to work out. And in so doing, they presume upon God's mercy because they have adopted a false hope. The Bible calls their trust a spider's web. In other words, it's no more reliable than a cobweb in the corner. They see no need for asking the question. That's tragic. And unless the Spirit prompts them, they'll never ask it. The Word of God tells us unreservedly that it's the most important question of all. And there's only one answer that can be given. Absolutely nothing. What must you do to be saved? Nothing. You can't do anything to be saved. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. We cannot do good deeds. We can't perform religious duties. We can't even give to charity and make a difference eternally. Eternal life cannot be gained by anything we can do or anything that we would do. It is a free gift. And God is sovereign in choosing those to whom he gives it. So Paul could have said to the jailer, you can do nothing. And if you try to do something, you'll perish. But of course, that's not what Paul said. Graciously and tenderly, he said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. In other words, you don't have to do anything. Just believe because it's all been done for you. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He's washed it white as snow. Isn't that glorious? Salvation is a free gift and you can't do anything and neither can I. Paul was basically saying by the authority vested in me by the Lord Jesus Christ, I offer this to you free of charge. And it's a response that was simple and forthright. And this is what they told the Philippian jailer, and this is what he embraced by faith. Now, had he asked the great philosophers of his day, they could not have given him an answer. Had he posed that question to the most learned Jewish scholars, they could not have given him an answer. Had he queried the brightest intellectuals among all the elite in Athens, they could not have answered him. They were utterly incapable. It's a spiritual question that demands a spiritual answer. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And the only reason the Philippian jailer believed was because the Spirit of God enabled him to do so. Unbelievers... And many or most or all of us were at one point unbelievers, are unable and unwilling to accept and understand spiritual things. The jailer was enabled to surrender his autonomy and place his trust squarely upon Christ. And it was a personal commitment. You see, saving faith is not merely a matter of assenting to the truth of the gospel. We've heard this before, but let me remind you. To assent. It means to affirm the truth of what's being said. I can say to you, the earth is round. And if you assent to that, you agree. You concur. You engage your understanding, but you leave your will and your affection totally untouched. There's no personal involvement in that. The earth is round. Okay. No trust, no commitment, no faith. You merely agree with the statement, which is what the devils do. Satan assents to the truth of the gospel. He has to. And it makes him tremble. The sincere Christian is a person like the jailer who assents and trusts in Christ. There is both the inward conviction and the outward confession of Christ's Lordship. So Paul tells us with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth he confesses and is saved. Mind, will, affections are all engaged in the commitment to Christ. Do you have all of those engaged? Believer, not only a to the truth of Jesus, he receives him and rests upon him. That's saving faith. I don't want you leaving this place being confused on that point. Some have claimed to describe it like this. He treasures Christ in his heart. And this is what he enabled the Philippian jailer to do. And this seems to be true of his entire household. It says they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So the whole family hears the terms of salvation. Everybody is addressed. And he and his whole family are baptized. And it seems as if they all believed. At least everybody who was of years and ability to examine themselves. If there were infants in the house, and it doesn't tell us if there were or not. They were baptized along with the rest. So God is faithful in his promise, extending his grace to his people. So, what are we going to draw from this? Two points, and I'm almost done. First, I think it's important for us to consider what it was that Paul did not say. The jailer's heart is prepared, God seizes his attention, the spirit brings conviction. He begins, as it were, to storm the gates of heaven in search of God's kingdom because we're told in Luke 16, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? Everyone forces his way into it. That's what happens to a man under conviction. He'll stop at nothing. The man was convicted, he's seeking, he is storming the gates of heaven, and Paul leads him to Christ with the classic words, believe in the Lord Jesus. And as far as we can tell, at that moment, he said nothing more than that. There's no discussion here of predestination or election or God's sovereign decree. He didn't mention civil or social or educational issues, no political concerns, There was no case made for Presbyterianism or Millennialism or Confessionalism. He said nothing about the subtleties of historical, canonical, or textual criticism. Thank God for that. All he said, very simply and very forthrightly, was this. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And I'm not belittling those other issues. Don't get me wrong. The primary concern in salvation is the imperative We're to grow in knowledge, understanding, and Christian prudence. As we read, we may present everyone mature in Christ, but at the beginning, in order to be saved and become a new creature, all we have to do is simply believe. From then on, there is growth and development, and each stage of spiritual life has different needs, and we exercise discernment to know what is needed. But it's a mark of wisdom to be able to discern at the beginning. That all that's necessary is belief in Christ. But then secondly and finally, it's important for us to consider what it was that he said. And he did say, believe in the Lord Jesus. And what it lacks in eloquence is more than made up for in profundity. It's the call for true, personal, fruitful faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that it's a command. I never thought of it this way before. I always looked at it as an invitation, which it is. But it's also a command. Believe in the Lord Jesus. 1 John 3.23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. In the middle of the night after his conversion, this man cared for the two missionaries. He washed their wounds, welcomed them to his house, fed them at his table and became his friend. He viewed them no longer just as prisoners, but as brothers in Christ. And he was a living illustration of what Paul calls the obedience of faith. True faith, saving faith. faith that justifies, will be active and fruitful and will embrace the gospel truths. And as a result, will fulfill the gospel duties. And it's an incredible and marvelous illustration of what God does for his people. May that happen to all of us here this morning. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the marvelous yet succinct description of what happened in the conversion of this jailer. We marvel at your grace and your mercy, and we're thankful that you've extended both to us. We ask that you'll help us, like the jailer, not only to assent to the truth of the gospel, but to receive and to rest upon Christ and to treasure Him above all things. For we ask it in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.